When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives in music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Howdy, music nerds, and welcome back to the show. This is episode number 155. And my guest this week is an incredible producer and bass player, and total behind-the-scenes maker and shaker, Mr. Larry Klein. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it, as always. And uh, it's great to be here bringing you another episode. So I'm releasing one today because I wanted to get one more in before the end of the year, and next week I'll be away. So I thought I'd release it today, this Wednesday, and then go back to normal in January. So after this episode, there's still going to be two more in this season before I take a break to work on season eight. So an extra big thanks to everyone for listening and supporting the show this year. It's been a crazy year with some real ups and downs throughout it, but overall an excellent one for me and a lot of great music and projects that I was involved in to reflect on and uh, hopefully lots more to come in the new year. I hope everyone has a great holiday wherever you are. And uh, yeah, we'll see you with the next episode in January, the first Wednesday in January. Just a reminder that time is running out to enter the Music Makers and Soul Shakers giveaway that I'll be doing on the last episode of the season, which will be the third Wednesday in January. That's going to be the giveaway episode. And all you have to do is sign up to the Patreon for the podcast and you'll be entered automatically. It's a great way to support the show, which I really appreciate and possibly win some groovy stuff from our sponsors. And this year I have three amazing pedals from Union Tube and Transistor. 
They're so great. They sponsored the show right from the beginning. And uh, yeah, they, I've got three pedals to give away, as well as a DI from our other sponsor, Spectra 1964. It's one of the coolest DIs out there on the planet. So please visit the makersandshakerspodcast.com page if you want to do that and sign up to the Patreon for as little as a couple bucks a month using the link on the top menu and you'll be entered automatically. Good luck. Also, if you're interested in attending the Henhouse Hang two-day mixing masterclass I'm doing here in Nashville in March, we're offering 10% off if you sign up before the end of the year. I'd love to see you here and get deep into some crazy mixing concepts. It'll be super nerdy and really fun. You can get info on that over at stevedawson.ca. And lastly, before we get going, just a shout out to a new Patreon subscriber this week who was generous enough to help support the show. Thank you to Craig Millhurst. All right, on to this week's show, Larry Klein. He's one of those guys whose name I've seen on great records for decades. He's a four-time Grammy winner as a producer. He's made records for Joni Mitchell, who he was also married to, Herbie Hancock, Holly Cole, Madeline Peru, Tracy Chapman. I think the first time I ever saw his name was on a cassette I had of a Sean Colvin album called Fat City. Really cool record. And then I just kept seeing his name pop up on cool records after that. He started out as a bass player in California and landed a really cool gig pretty early on with Freddie Hubbard, and he toured with Freddie for years. He was a killer upright bass player, and then I guess wanted to kind of stick around home a bit more and uh, slipped right into the session world. And so as a bass player, he played on some insane records like So by Peter Gabriel, Building the Perfect Beast by Don Henley, come on, Robbie Robertson's, I guess I think his debut record, the solo record. Uh, Tracy Chapman's debut record, huge, massive, iconic records, epic records. He eventually landed a session with Joni Mitchell, which led to him playing on and producing a string of her records, starting with uh, Wild Things Run Fast in 1982, right up through Travelogue in 2002. And they were married and divorced in that window of time as well. His production work is really deep and interesting. He has a real jazz sensibility towards making pop records, which I love. There's a lot of live performance-based stuff mixed with really interesting sonic textures and experimentation. And hey, gaining the trust of Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter, that's no small feat, but he did it. And in recent years, Larry made a really cool record with Herbie Hancock of Joni Mitchell tunes called River, the Joni Letters. And during COVID, he made a record in a similar vein called Here It Is. It's a tribute to Leonard Cohen. And it's basically an insane house band backing up artists like Iggy Pop, Nora Jones, Peter Gabriel, Mavis Staples, and lots more, all doing Leonard Cohen tunes. Definitely check that one out. I don't think Larry's on the road at all anymore, so you can't catch him live with anyone currently, but you can get info on him and news on his latest projects over at LarryKleinMusic.net. I should also mention that we just plumb well ran out of time on this episode, hence the abrupt ending. Larry had a limited window of time, and I lost track of time, as I do, gabbering on about stuff, and so we had to cap it sort of midstream. But we got into lots of cool stuff anyway. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Larry Klein. I wonder if we could start by just kind of talking about some broad strokes about your productions in the past. And one thing that I've noticed, and probably part of this is is kind of due to like the era when you started and when you were doing a lot of stuff as well, was big studios were way more readily available and budgets were larger. And yeah. one thing that one thing that I noticed is that some of the, or quite a few of your projects, especially your higher profile ones, have a large cast of characters on them, like mm. huge, 
uh, lists of musicians, you know, people dropping in for one song, two songs, that kind of thing, and uh, guest vocalists and things like that. And that's really interesting to me because the way that I've always worked is like fast and small and like rarely will I swap out a drummer or anything like that. And I'm just wondering right. if that's a coincidence or a product of the time or if that's like an aesthetic choice that you've always made that you like to do things in little chunks where you have a band for one song and then you swap it out for uh, another song in the project or, or just how that sort of came to be. I'm not sure exactly which projects you're thinking of, but it, I mean, it can be for all sorts of reasons, some very mundane in, in that, you know, I think on some records uh, that I've worked on, we've only had uh, a certain amount of songs uh, that were ready to cut, but, you know, but uh, the artist was anxious to cut them and we, you know, we had the ability uh budget wise and in every respect to, to go in and do as much as we had at that time um so that's you know that's perhaps one reason and then uh the other reason might be just suitability for for a, a, a given group of songs you know mm -hmm. uh, you know d dividing up a, a record into, sections where you know oh, oh this these songs would be really great with this band these songs would be great kind of changing out these elements and, and you know trying and di trying different combinations of things uh it, it, as far as musicians go that's you know sort of a summary of the reasons that that might be the case you know where where i I've done things where we have different players, but um, I think I think one that really jumped out for me, uh, a production of yours that I've always loved is Fat City by Sean Colvin. And I uh -huh. pulled I pulled that out to listen to the other day just to brush up on it because it's been a while. And I looked at the credits and there's like 50 people on that record or something like that. Well, that's a different situation. Okay. Because she, had, she had actually started that record with John Leventhal, mm. just the initial uh, initial uh, burst of it, and then for various reasons they stopped, and um, then I picked up where she had uh, left off with him. And um, I mean, there 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 are some, uh, you know, I forget the exact songs, but but uh, there are some things where actually, you know, the basic tracks were done with uh, with a rhythm section that she and he decided to use. And then when I picked up with her and, and uh, we moved on with the record, things had changed. And, and, right. and, and, and between she and I, we had some ideas of trying different things, you know. Uh, you know I can't remember all, all, the, all the specifics, but I think, I think you know that we we had Richie Hayward on on something, and then and then we had uh, the guys from a group called the Sub Dudes. On, Sub Dudes, on, yeah, love those a, guys on a couple things. And and, and um, you had Keltner. There's like Booker T, Bela Fleck, yeah. Richard Thompson, Vinnie Caliuta. It's a pretty bonkers list, actually. Yeah, yeah, and and and, uh, and that just you know. In, in in the case of those things, it was just casting 
mm-hmm. and think and thinking, okay, you know, we, look, you know, let's. Uh, oh, in some cases, it was an overdub situation where, like, for example, Booker T. Uh, Booker overdubbed on on the things that he did. Okay, and so we, you know, we brought him in as a, a as an additional. Um, element on a on a song and and um yeah it was just you know certain songs uh felt like they suited different uh additional elements the same thing with richard uh you know we just were both dying to have him play on this thing and he you know we were lucky enough for him to make time to come in and play and and so um and 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 as you're saying you know things were things were much different in that time as well uh but budget wise and you know in regard to the the amount of time um one had to make a record you know yeah it's 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 a different world that we live in now you know a lot lot, lot less a lot less uh, freedom in that way where, where, you know, where you have, uh, you know, the wherewithal to, to do those kind of dream things, you know, like, uh, where one person says, God, what if we had so-and-so come in one day and, and you, you have the time to set aside, you know, three or four hours to, you know, to work with that person. Um, and, you know, I think in this time, everybody's making records in, in, in a much, uh, faster way, uh, absolutely with lower budgets and, and such, you know, so, so some, you know, it's a, in some ways it's a shame because, because records, I think sometimes benefit from that kind of dreaming that's involved where where you where you just say oh god i want this person and you just you know it 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 sometimes is is even just a cold call situation where you just you know you call them and say god you know we're working on this thing and you would you know we we both think that that you would just be perfect for playing on on this you know yeah. At that time, on, on Sean's record, she was living in L.A., I believe, and 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 we were working on the, I think we were working on the song, uh, in the studio that Joni and I had. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also kind of impressive too, in that she was probably kind of an unknown commodity at that point too. Like it wasn't like Sean Colvin was a huge star. I don't think she'd even had any hits to speak of or had probably sold that many records at that point. She probably had a couple of small records out by then or something. I don't really remember what the trajectory of her career was, but that was pre all the, all the hits and stuff. That was really her first substantial record. The one that you did, right? Um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. Depends on how you would define substantial. You know, she had already done a record that had, had, you know, her first record had gotten a Grammy nomination for best folk record, I think. Oh, okay. Um, you I'm know, probably just remembering was, that wrong, but yeah, she was definitely on the, on the map, but it was a different kind of record for her than she had ever made. And, and so, 
um, different elements. Uh, uh, what originally drew me to it was like the subdudes. I was a big fan of theirs. I don't, I don't really know what those guys do now, but at the, at that time when I was like aware of them, I was a huge fan and there they were on that record. Plus I'm a guitar player and, and the, there's some David Lindley stuff on there that's phenomenal. And, and, and it's one of Chris Whitley's, uh, few session guitarist guest appearances too, which is really interesting. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, she, uh, she had gotten to know Chris and so, you know, we were able to bring him in to, to play and, and, and he wasn't used to guesting on records. So it was a, it was a, uh, um, yeah, my feeling with him was like, I was, when I was, I was going to Berkeley college music in Boston and right when he first got signed and they were busing him around the country and he was doing in stores at tower records for like a month at a time and just like playing all the time. And I feel like they were totally confused. Like the, his label was confused about how to deal with him. And I think they saw him as like a modern day blues man and that he was going to become like a session, like the guy to call for slide guitar or whatever. And he just totally was not in, like, that was not at all what he did. And his, his guest appearances dried up pretty quickly, but, uh, uh, cause he wasn't really like that kind of a player at all. He was just such a singular kind of dude, but you guys managed to harness him in a cool way that I don't think he ever did again. Yeah. And I remember, uh, one funny thing about that, uh, about that period was that I, I didn't know, uh, until, until just a little while before that, that Booker T was around and doing sessions and, and whatnot. And I got, I got called to to play on a record uh, by T-Bone Burnett. Uh, it was a Bruce Coburn record, and 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 um, and I walked in, and here's this, you know, very nicely dressed uh, guy who standing by the organ, and 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 I introduced myself, and and uh, you know, he ended up. We had a little conversation, and he gives me his card. <laughs> it's a Fred Sands realty card. Like he was, he was selling real estate at that time. Really? And, and, uh, I was just stunned. I, I said, are you, are you doing sessions? And he said, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> um, call me when, when, when things come up, I am. Yeah. And oh. so, uh, that the idea of having Booker, well, first of all, playing on that, on that session was fantastic. And he was still playing, you know, just every bit as well as he ever did. And with the same kind of signature, the the, the same kind of harmonic and melodic signature that he always had. Yeah. And, uh, and so uh, I was lucky enough to get him to play on other things as well. Yeah. That's pretty special. I wonder, like, can you talk a little bit about how you approach actually actively producing people like that that have been around like he's been around a lot longer than you have and and i guess that sort of ties into like wayne shorter as well and and uh, herbie hancock and people like that like it must be to think of like producing them is kind of terrifying or i would think it would be terrifying <laughs> maybe maybe for you it was very natural and easy but is that something that you have uh like has it ever been a struggle or like something that's hard or stressful in any way or is it usually just easy because they're cool and easygoing people 
Well, it's it, it it's difficult in some cases. Well, to mention one, uh, when when uh, Herbie and I did um, this record, River of the Joni Letters, which was a uh, a a, uh, a sort of re-examination and, and a kind of reimagining of a group of uh, Joni songs. Um, we were doing the uh, we did the the tracking for that with with this kind of dream band uh, that uh, we were able to put together for that, where it was Herbie and Wayne Shorter, Dave Holland. Uh, Lionel Luiki and Vinnie Colaiuta, and we did it in in uh, New York City at Avatar Studios, which is now the the name of it has gone back to being Power Station. But but uh, but uh, I remember thinking every day going to the studio, um, sort of agonizing o- over <laughs> it because you know these uh, at least. Herbie Wayne and Dave were really my heroes growing up. And, and in in order to do my job well, um, on that record, I I had to be able to, uh, you know, say no to them basically in certain situations. (laughs) Um, one funny kind of part of that record was that I, uh, when I first started working on pre pre-production with Herbie, I had kind of whittled down Joni's, you know, massive body of work to a smaller group of songs that I thought were potential things that we could uh, consider approaching on this record and, 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 and work with. And so I brought, um, lyrics to all of these that group of songs over to Herbie's studio and sat down and and said well let, let, let's let, let's go through some of these things and gave him a copy of the lyrics and and he said you know i, I i've never listened to words in songs wow. and and uh and i kind of paused for a second and said well you're gonna have to start now because <laughs> yeah you know, th- this record is all about working with the songs in a way where we're, we're, we're creating underscore to the poetry as opposed to, as opposed to just playing the songs with a vocal, uh, um, delivering the, ly- the lyrics. And, um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the poetry is so for me on that record, it was so important that we, that we not just do a record where, the vocals are, are 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 just existing over here, and the accompaniment over here. Mm-hmm. But that the but that the record ties together in a in a way where the what we're doing musically is functioning as as underscore to the to the lyrics. Yeah, and yeah. so um, you know, so as I was walking over to the studio every day, I would just be kind of cursing myself saying, Oh God, this is, you know, this is just so hard because I had all the lyrics printed out for, uh, all of the players. And we, we would play Joni's version, uh, everybody having copies of the lyrics. And, and then I would talk to them about, 
at least, you know, what my perception, uh, my perception of what was going on in the lyric and what things meant and how things laid thematically in the lyric and, you know, to give them kind of more information on the dramatic arc of the song. And, um, uh, and then they would go in and, and we'd start working on it. And, and, you know, musicians, jazz musicians of the stature of Kirby Wayne or, or Dave, they're, you know, they really function and functioned, you know, in Wayne's case, of course, he passed mm-hmm. away now. But uh, but but uh, you know, they 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 were functioning on a on an Olympian level, and so uh, they're used to going into recording situations and just playing through the the song once, maybe twice, yeah, um, and getting something, and then moving on, you know. And this was a different situation. It was, it was, uh, you know, I had to be the person to say, well, no, you know what? We, we really, we need to look at this section because what's going on here is a, is a little bit, there's a little bit too much happening musically for this section because we, because this is what's happening dramatically in the song and so forth. And so, so, it, you know, for me to be, uh, telling my heroes, no, you're not quite actually, you, you're not <laughs> you're missing quite the getting the point of this thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was, you know, at times very difficult and, and kind of, kind of, kind of agonizing, you know, let me ask you a couple of questions about that particular session. Cause it, it's a really interesting concept and it's also like a really defined job that you would have had as a producer because, it's not just like a matter of putting people in a room. It, there is a really important concept, which is taking the music of Joni Mitchell and reinterpreting it with the, these jazz players, but also guest vocalists. So that, that's a lot of ingredients. So this was done in New York at the power station or whatever it was called at that time. And were you playing bass as well or, or was... No. You, okay. Was the band fairly consistent through the whole project? Uh, yeah, I, I, well, well, let's see, did I play bass on anything on that record? Uh, I might've played bass on, on one or two things. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure actually. Um, so, so did yeah, you, we, 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 we did a, we, we, we did do a little bit of recording in Los Angeles and, okay. and, uh, and that was a different situation. Um, those were some ad- additional things that we recorded, but, um, like, did you walk uh, in with a songbook with a bunch of charts and like changes and things like that for the catalog of Joni's tunes? Because those are not just simple charts for any of those. <laughs> like, almost all of her tunes are like they can be interpreted different ways, and that the inversions are crazy, and it's it's not that simple to just like write a chart for a lot of her songs. Yeah, but I did. Okay. So, yeah. So 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 yeah. Each time, each day. You know, I had the objective of getting certain songs done, and 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 I, you know, wrote out kind of not in, not in, in, not really involved charts, more more just sort of harmonic, you know, charts that defined what was going on harmonically, so that we were coming in and everybody could see what was going on structurally. Okay. Uh, 
as a roadmap and also harmonically. Um, because as you said, her, her song, you know, her songs are not generally not simple or not harmonically. They're, they're, you know, kind of, that's part of how she hears things is in this kind of polychordal sort of fashion that she originally got at and, and, and gets at, uh, through using various tunings on, on the guitar. So no, I would come in with, I would come in with specific, um, songs that were our agenda to get and, and, and also kind of ideas in my mind, uh, about how you know what the shape of the track would be and and what the engine of the track might sound like and 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 this is something that i do i still do all the time is you know i when i when i start a record i i go through and i make notes and and you know, usually if, if the artist doesn't have some type of charts, I'll, I'll do, do a takedown, do a takedown of, uh, of the basic sort of bones of the songs. I, I rarely, uh, especially if it's, if it's a record involving live players, I rarely get into to arranging them, the, the songs too much because I want to take advantage of spontaneity and, and, the people that are in the room what what intuitively this group of great players which you know i'm very fortunate to be able to work with some of the best musicians in the world really in my opinion um i would agree so uh but i'll go through and i'll and i'll make notes sometimes a series of times sometimes i'll start with a, a, a one set of notes and then go back over everything and kind of revise the revise those of of how things lay out in the song almost like a almost like a flow chart of how you know oh oh, this element enters here and stops here re-enters here almost like a diagram in a way but but you know but but a verbal diagram you know it's 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 done very simply you know where, where i've got each section of the song, perhaps at the top of the uh, of the section for each song, I've got who's playing on each track, what they're playing, and then and then the sections of the song, and then what's going on, you know what what the what the engine of things um, feels like. Yeah. Uh, in in that section, and then oh, then going from the A section to the B section uh, on this track, uh, this element drops out, only to come back at the chorus, doing a rolling figure, for example, like some some, some you know things like that, where where I, I've got a mental photograph in my mind or or movie of of how i see things working on the track yeah and then and and then once i have that i kind of put that in my back pocket and when it comes to actually tracking 
I don't, I might dispense a bit of information to each player, uh, but just enough to kind of get started uh, working with the song. And then then I like to see what happens and what what just spontaneously kind of comes out of each player because I've, I've got the luxury of, You've got Wayne Shorter in the room. Yeah, Wayne Shorter or Dean Parks or or whoever it is that I'm working with. I've got these these great these great uh, musicians who have a you know a a lifetime of uh, developing intuition and and uh, instinct, and and I want to take advantage of course of all of that. So. So, you know, I'll, I'll kind of keep these notes figuratively in my back pocket. I mean, they'll be, you know, I'll have my, my, I'll have my computer there with my notes on it. And, and then depending on what, uh, how things develop, I'll, um, sometimes just throw them out the window, you know, and if, if things start going in a different direction that feels, that feels better to me, I just go with it. Uh, yeah, I'll go with that, and and I, uh, you know, I won't even refer to the notes that I had. But then something, you know, then sometimes on a certain section, um, things won't be working the way that I feel like they should, and then I'll refer back to certain things that I had uh, thought of, in you know, in the way that I uh, was visualizing the song to to lay yeah. out. So. Yeah. So it varies from situation to situation, track to track, and record to record. You know how how much I'll I'll actually use of of what my um, sort of uh, vision of in my in my mind of of how things should go lays out. So um, right. Yeah. At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support, and this year they are Mule Resophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Resophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Deering. Deering banjos make some of the finest instruments out there these days and caters to all levels as well. If you're just getting into the banjo, they offer their incredible Good Time series, which are high-quality instruments at lower prices. Deering banjos are all made in the USA, and their website also features some incredible info on their products and just general banjo information. And now Deering is also making pro pick finger picks and thumb picks, and that's exciting because I've been using those finger picks for years. They make these cool ones with the fingertips missing, and I love those. They're the best. You can get info on the banjos and the finger picks over at DeeringBanjos.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the More Pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. 
And finally, The Hen House Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at The Hen House Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then. Let's get back to the show. How did, how did you incorporate vocalists into this situation so that... I don't think anyone sings more than one song on that record, but there's a number of guest vocalists. Were they involved in the early stage or did you, you didn't track and then have them come and sing over top of tracks, did you? Uh, in many places, in, 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 on, on many records, uh, I had guide vocalists who were kind enough to oh. come in and uh, sing with us so that, um, so that we had the words there to, to, yeah. Cause I would imagine that would be an impossible thing to schedule would be to have like Nora Jones in at the same time, Wayne Shorter yeah. is available. Like that's a little, yes. yeah. Yes. Yes. Like, like on, on, for example, uh, yeah. And, in, in, well, actually no, in, in Nora's case on that, uh, on the Herbie record, she she happened to be in New York at the same time, and she did actually sing sing live with with everybody. Um, but that's not usually the case. You know, many times on these kind of records, I'll have to get uh, if it's a, if it's a record where there are multiple vocalists uh, and. For example, this um, this record of Leonard Cohen's music that I just did last year, um, uh, I used two different guide vocalists to to play with us, and 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 b- both great singers in their own right. But but uh, you know the the uh, the vocalist that was still kind of toward the end of. COVID uh, and, and people mm-hmm. weren't just weren't flying around at that time. Right. And also people are just busy with their own career and, and doing, doing things. And it's just, if I, if I was to try and put together sessions where everybody was there in the same room, it would take 25 years. As, far as vocalists goes, it, it just wouldn't happen, you know? Yeah. So, so in, in, in those kind of situations, I'll have a guide vocalist sing with us. So that, how do you, uh, how do you uh, get the keys right? Uh, well, you know, I, I rely in different sessions, in, in different situations. It's, it's a back and forth of, of, uh, of talking to them on the phone and having okay. them go over the song, you know, per, perhaps, um, getting an idea of the area keys key wise um that would be interesting to have them sing in that that would feel right to them and and then have them try it wherever they are uh just sitting at the piano or or something Mm -hmm. um so that so that we do something uh that that feels either interesting you know, either interesting, different, or 
just right or perhaps all of the above. I mean, you know, uh, sometimes it's a, it's something unexpected. I mean, like I, um, James Taylor was on this, this, uh, record of Leonard Cohen songs that, that, uh, that I just did this last year. And, and, and we ended up, uh, having him work in a key that was lower than his usual area that he sings in. And, and it, it was that, it, was that on purpose or was that just the way it worked out? And, and it was kind of like, well, too late to do anything about it at that point. I, I, I think that a little bit of both, you know, uh-huh. yeah, you know, I think that in the end it felt low, but we both agreed that it was inter- interesting to hear him kind of explore singing uh, in an area key-wise that wasn't his usual uh, territory, you know, and that that it kind of suited, that it really, it it suited the spirit of the track and and it was something different. Yeah. It was something different for people to to experience hearing him in in this different area key-wise. What, who was in the band for that project? This is the Leonard Cohen one. It was uh, Nate Smith on drums. Oh, nice. Uh, Kevin Hayes on piano. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Lease on pedal steel. steel. Uh, Larry Goldings on organ. Wicked. Um, and you were playing bass? No, Scott Colley was playing okay. bass. Uh, and Bill Frizzell playing guitar. Nice. That was the, uh, am I leaving anyone out there? Let's see. No, I think, I I think that's it. So did you guys set up and just sort of like do the whole record as a band instrumentally more or less? And then you dealt with the vocalists separately, whether it was remotely or them coming in. Is that sort of how you worked through that project? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we, We ended up doing all of the, the tracking in two days, I believe. Nice. Um, and, uh, and actually, uh, Greg Lease and Larry Goldings were overdubs. Um, so, so we, you know, we got the core of, of all of the tracks in two. I can't remember whether it was two or three days. Um, but, but with, with everybody in the same, you know, in the studio at the same time and playing together. And then, then it was a, 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 a bit a of a process. grind getting, getting well, everybody it was a process sing. of getting everybody. Yeah. We, we did another single day where I, where I put, uh, Greg and Larry Goldings on, um, as an overdub. And, and then the, the, the process of getting the, vocals done was incremental you know and where where you know i was it was remote in almost almost all cases uh except i think i believe uh luciana Souza, who's my wife she was able to come in and sing live with the band yeah um but the rest of it was done sort of with ghost vocalist, like with or whatever you want to call them, but people 
roughing in the vocal part with the band so they could get a feel for the phrasing and the lyric and all that. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and then, um, but I was able to work, for example, in person with Gregory Porter because he lives in Bakersfield and, and we were able to schedule it in a way where he came down to LA and we did it in the same studio, okay. um, sitting together. And that was really, that was really fortunate because the song that he was, he, he was singing a song called Suzanne, which is a very well-known yeah. song of Leonard's and, uh, and, and a deceivingly difficult or deceptively difficult, uh, song to sing in many ways and so we were able to actually work sitting in the same place so you know on some things i just sent the track to the person we talked and they worked on their own and 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 you know in many cases uh singers especially of that stature of all of the singers who delivered those songs on that record, they, they know how to use their voice, yeah, man. Uh, you know, better than anyone. And so it, it's not like I'm taking a huge gamble by, you know, relying on having them do their yeah. vocals, uh, without, without actually being there. And, um, and so in many cases, especially on that record, because of the COVID situation, um, things functioned remotely when it came to the uh, executing of the vocals. Yeah, I get Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. That, that's really interesting project, man. That's, uh, it's so cool to hear how some of that stuff is done. Um, oh, uh, you know who I forgot who was there during the, during the tracking was... Emmanuel Wilkins, uh, this great yeah. uh, young uh, alto sax player who uh, is on Blue Note Records, who I discovered with this project. And, um, or I discovered him via Don was uh, actually playing me a couple of tracks because I, I, I really wanted to um, have a a special kind of horn player involved in that record and one that, that was able to play around lyric, mm -hmm. play around words in, in, in a, in a, uh, in a visual way. 
I don't that's the only uh, yeah. word that I can kind of think of to describe it, but you know, in, in a way where they're not just playing arbitrarily or just playing little licks around around things, but really where where they're playing is is part of the fabric of things musically, but also really relating to the lyric and the vocal in a very organic way. And so Emmanuel was a essential part of the the plot on that record, you know, find finding yeah. him because by that time I, you know, I was so used to the idea of, of, of Wayne shorter uh, playing on things. I was, you know, I was really hoping that he might be able to, to play on this record, but by that time his health was mm-hmm. such that he, he wasn't able to play anymore. So, yeah. Uh, so I had to find someone else who, who uh, as a horn player had that was ability. able to do that, you know, and yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's a rare bird to find. No doubt. <laughs> How does a project like that come to be? Like, is that you taking, like, you've obviously got a deep connection to Leonard Cohen's music and those players. Is it you saying like, hey, ma- let's make this happen. I've got this idea. And then you take it to to Don Was at Blue Note or whatever. Or is it Don Was or somebody coming to you and saying, hey, you're the guy for this. We want to do this sort of thing where people interpret Leonard Cohen's songs and you'd be the guy to do it. Like, how? what was the, what was the catalyst for doing this project? Uh, Leonard was, was a dear friend of mine, actually, who I, who I knew, you know, I knew for about 30 years, I'd first met him through Joni and we had become, I'd say, you know, friends, but, but on the peripheral side, you know, I'd, Mm -hmm. I'd speak to him every once in a while, but then in, in the last, uh, oh, I would say 10 years of his life uh we became closer friends and by the time he passed away he really was one of those people that we all have who when they pass away you know one has to just kind of resign oneself to the fact that they're gonna they're just gonna wake up and miss that person every day you know the, the, you know the mm-hmm their interaction with them and, and uh, just where they sit in your life, you know? And, uh, and so I I find myself and still find myself, by the way, you know, on projects going to his songs, going to Leonard's songs and, and, and and, uh, cutting them with different artists that I work with because one, because, of course, he was such a phenomenal, you know, really, really one of the few best, uh, uh, I'd say, popular songwriters of the 20th century in a way, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. there was just, there's this wealth of great songwriting and incredible, you know, incredible uh, poetry uh that is a part of his body of work. But then also I, I figured out that, that working on his songs kind of kept him around me in a certain way. And, um, and so I went to uh, Don was, and I said, what do you think of the idea of me doing a record uh, 
of, of, of Leonard's music. And, um, and Don liked the idea and said, mm-hmm. said, yeah, but let's do that. Cool. And, um, it's so good to have a guy like that in charge of things. <laughs> he, yeah, it, it is. He's a yes and, man. <laughs> and I was very, you know, of course I was ha- very happy that, that he said, yes, I, I, I actually kind of visualized that record in a slightly different way. And that, in that I thought that, that I would, uh, build the record with the guest guest vocalists around a central instrumental musician kind of with the same overall structure that I worked with on the Herbie right. River, the Joni letters record, you know, where, where Herbie kind of sat at the center instrumentally of the record, but then there were these featured uh songs you know for each vocalist and uh but it didn't it, it didn't work out uh you know i only had a couple of musicians that i was thinking of as possibilities for that role and um excuse me and um in herbie's case he was working on another idea a, a record that he had been working on and still working on uh, for, for years, literally. And he, can, he oh. said, well, I, I, I don't think that I can do this because if I get distracted by working on another record, um, I'll never finish this other idea that I'm working on. And then, uh, also I was thinking of Terrence Blanchard, oh, cool. uh, as a possibility, who's absolutely amazing, uh, trumpet player and composer and musician who I've known for many years. But we, in in Terrence's case, um, I I think we just had different ideas about, about how, um, how to make the record work. And, and, uh, and for him, I felt, I ended up feeling like uh, that it was going to end up, it was going to end up feeling like the next Terrence Blanchard record. Whereas, whereas uh, my, my concept of the record really was to, to do something um, in, in some ways similar to the Joni record where, where the, where the music served as underscore for the poetry and, 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 and where uh, there was that kind of space in the playing uh, and the way that we approach things musically mm-hmm. to, to, uh, for, for the poetry to sit in and have the dominant, uh, occupy the dominant position that it needed to for that record, you know, to and, accomplish and, what you had in mind for it. Yeah. I get yeah, that. Yeah. And, 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 and I, 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 you know, I knew that for instance, that, that one of the things that, that, uh, I'd say bothered Leonard about a lot of the covers that were done of his songs was that he felt like people, when they approached his songs, didn't leave enough room for the lyrics or the poetry to speak. And so certainly in, in doing a record of his music and, and knowing this, 
about him. I, mm-hmm. You know, I had sort of my little Leonard sitting in my head and I, I, I you know, I, I just felt like uh, Terrence was on a different page as far as how he saw approaching right. this record. So, so I went, you know, in, I, I was trying to figure that out. And then, and then uh, in the end, Don just said, just, just do it the way that you feel it should be done. And um, that's so cool. And it was after that, that, uh, that I found Emmanuel Wilkins through Don, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, to serve as a, as a horn voice on the record, but it, it but it ended up being a, a bit, a, a bit of a different record than I had initially, uh, envisioned in it in that he he didn't occupy uh that position in the same way that i initially thought that the that the musician who sat at the center of it would you know Uh Uh um so it but that happens sometimes 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 you start out you you start a record and and you have one uh picture of it in mind and then circumstance set you know plays a, a part of things and you have to you have to adjust to that and and it changes you know mm-hmm. and um happens all the uh, time so in a way i reluctantly sort of became the artist uh, on the record right. you know i still you know i f- feel like it it turned out really beautifully um that is very cool a, a bit different in some ways than than I had initially Im- imagined, but but all you know, all of the guest, guest vocalists were fantastic on it, and the the the, the uh, you know the band that I put together uh, worked beautifully, and that that was a a really essential. I mean, for me, it always is, but but putting together the right band and mm-hmm. who. In this case, I really needed musicians who were secure enough, you know, in in their playing that they were not trying to prove anything. Uh, And then also who uh, musicians who listened to words and were able to kind of play in, in a in a way that was reacting to lyrics. Kind yeah, of. poetic in a certain way, not mm-hmm. not not in a ne- necessarily a literal kind of uh, way, but just just you know s- somehow there's something special about a um, a musician who who really listens intently to lyric and vocal and, and vocals when they play on things, you know. Um, of course, yeah, and, and so that was. That was a, a very important part of of putting the record together was was getting the right musicians and in fact uh, you know at a at a when we in the end I initially had thought to uh, to do the you know I set the record up to do it in Los Angeles and uh, in, in the end when I figured out the right musicians they were all from Brooklyn. So I really should have <laughs> uh, recorded the record Just done it there <laughs> in Brooklyn yeah, and, and, and gone there myself. But, but, uh, but you know, when, once I kind Bring of, them fin- to you. yeah, once I fin- figured out 
who was right. Uh, um, it just worked out to bring everybody. Yeah. Los Angeles and they, and, and fortunately they were willing to fly at that time when it was not a little dodgy. Yeah. It was not, not everybody's, uh, favorite thing to do, you know, considering the COVID situation. I wonder if you could tell me just a a bit about, um, you've had some interesting changes in your career, like going from a pretty, you know, like a traditional jazz bass player. I don't know what your background was exactly, but I know you were playing with like Freddie Hubbard and stuff like that. And you were out on the road (laughs) and then, and then suddenly you started doing sessions and you play on some crazy stuff that, uh, you know, like there's a, like some of those Don Henley hits in the eighties and Peter Gabriel stuff. Uh Um, how did that happen? Like, how did you go from playing Freddie Hubbard to playing with in sessions in LA? Like, was that a thing where you were just like, I got to make a change here? Or were you happy being a jazz road guy? Or what was your situation back then? No, I, you know, I, I started out uh, when, I, when, you know, coming out of school, I, I started out really with the uh, uh objective of you know playing with my jazz heroes and 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 learning from them you know and Mm -hmm. and uh and i was able to do that and i was you know really most interested at that point in jazz and what was going on and and there um i don't know it felt like a very exciting time in jazz um at that at that point and then you know, I spent, I don't know, uh, maybe six or seven years mainly doing that. And then I reached a certain point and, and it just felt like I, I started feeling like that there was something about the jazz world that was not as interesting as it had been to me initially. And the, it felt like the vitality of things musically had moved over into pop music, you know? Okay. And, and like, what were you hearing in the pop world that you thought was like something that you wanted to get your mitts into that? that well, would... I, well, I always, you know, I mean, I, I always was an omnivore. Okay. Uh, uh, musically from the beginning. I mean, I, I, I always listened to all kinds of music. My parents had a great record collection Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, from the time I was a kid, I, 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 I listened to and enjoyed playing and, and, and listening to all sorts of different music, whether it was pop or Frank Sinatra or, uh, or, or jazz, uh, or classical music. And, and, and I just started feeling like, uh, the jazz world was about how fast you could play and is this sort of, is this sort of like early eighties when this was happening when you were on the road and sort of like hitting that point? Uh, a little bit earlier, yeah, okay. but uh, uh, but, uh, but re- yeah, right around nineteen eighty or yeah. eighty one or so. And I started I started feeling like like uh, you know th- th- this kind of emphasis on virtuosity as opposed to lyricism and 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 yeah, jazz was really changing at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it just felt it, it, it became kind of tiresome to me, you know, um, mm-hmm. both in that the emphasis 
of things and what people were were appreciating in jazz and what was being recorded in jazz and stuff that it had more to do with virtuosity uh than than a, a curiosity of sorts you know like of mm-hmm. finding different ways to get a feeling across in music and and i i felt like that to a large extent that that was going on in in pop music and so i i i I decided that uh, it would it would be a good thing for me to try and stay in town in, in LA and, and do more studio work and and learn mm-hmm. kind of learn more about uh, you know the session world. Who were the guys doing all that work back then? It was like Leland Sklar probably and that whole yeah, crew. Okay. Yeah, Lee was certainly one one of one of the people. And I mean, I had a whole set of. Uh, of, of musicians that that uh, that were kind of my heroes in that world, you know, John Guerin, Lee Sklar, okay, um, Russ Kunkel, um, yeah, that late seventies, early eighties LA world that you were, yeah. you're right there, yeah, yeah, and 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 so you know, I started doing getting calls to to play on different types of records. And then, like how, how did you get your foot in the door in the first place? Like, cause you, cause it's hard sometimes when you're known as like a road jazz guy to suddenly be like on the call list for a pop session. So what was the, was there something that happened that made you one of those guys all of a sudden? I mean, there was in, in that time, there were great, uh, there were great jazz clubs in, in LA. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, a, a lot of the, guys who were doing the recording work would also be playing at the jazz clubs, you know? Okay. And, uh, and so I started getting called to, uh, to, to do out of, out of playing with some of these great people at clubs, they would start calling me to play on sessions, you know? Okay. And, uh, um, and so that gradually, just organically developed, you know, and I started being getting called to do more session work. And and then, and then uh, at a certain point I got the opportunity to, to uh, start producing records. And uh, yeah. How did that come about? Cause that was like well, another one big... of the first records that I co-produced with Mike Shipley was uh, a guy named Ben Benjamin Orr, who was the bass player. And uh, one of the, the singers, right? The cars, yeah. And we did that together. And sometimes things just happen, you know. In, in in that instance, you know, we did the record over in uh, England, in at a residential studio out in an area um, called Somerset near Bath. Oh, is and, that the, uh, is that the Peter Gabriel place? Is that how you ended well, up in that it was, world? It was it was close to where Peter was working, which was not real world at that time. At that time, he had a little studio that was called uh, Ashcom House. Okay, and it was just kind of a garage type studio, very oh. funky kind of studio that he had put together to make his records in. And so I was out there working on Ben's record. And uh, and out of the blue, got a call to come in and and play on some things, 
on Peter's record. Was, was that the Len? Was that the Lanois one? That's right. He was just that was finishing, so right. He was finishing up so yeah, and and there were some things to be done, and 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 I was just lucky enough to be there, and out of the blue got a call to come in and play on uh, on that record on some amazing of some, some things that were not you know there were uh, Tony Levin had played on a, a, a large part of that record but then Tony I believe was off with King Crimson and and so uh, they you know they were looking for someone to play on some things that they were still finishing. Cause that record, that record was going on for like two years or something, I think. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you were sort yeah. of at the tail end of that process. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. On, on the things that I played on, in fact, that was the, I, I think the last element to, to go on the tracks. Do you remember uh, what songs you played on, on that? Yeah. Yeah. I played on Mercy street. Oh, uh, cool. And then I played on a song called in your eyes. Amazing. And, and, and so that's epic. Um, and then that led to uh, doing the first of the amnesty tour uh, tours with Peter in, in his band. That was fantastic experience for me. And, and, and I, you know, all kinds of things started just shifting and I, I, you know, I was, I ended up starting to work with Joni on a, production level where we were working together producing her records so were you were you in her band like how did you end up working with her on um because wild things run fast was the first record you did with her right that's right and and i ended up working on that uh because of john garen and 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 john of course had worked with her a lot previously and i had been playing with john on different record dates and and he had also playing live around LA doing different things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so Joni had four songs written, no, three songs written. And so, and, but wanted to go in and, and record them. And so we initially went into the studio, just the three of us, just John, oh. Joan and myself and cut these three songs. And she loved the way that that was, the way that that felt and then space for her. Yeah. And then, and then she, she needed to write more songs. And so she went off and there was a gap and then we came back and. So did those original uh, sessions, did those songs end up on, on that record? Yeah. Okay, cool. So I I don't know, know, like during that time, things just kind of shifted and, 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 and led to me uh, working more uh, on records, uh, and, and, and sort of gravitating more into the, into what you might call the, the pop world of things. Yeah. Uh, and, and also doing more production work and, and, and that was, uh, that ended up really feeling right to me, you know, in, in that in playing on records, one of the things that often was a, a a disappointment, I would say, was that you would go in and play on a session and it would sound great and everything would be working beautifully. And then, and then you would hear the record when it came out and everything that was kind of uh, interesting 
and sort of magical about what had been done initially had gotten buried under uh, a lot of overdubs. Right. And, and, you know, so the idea of being able to have some control over how things ended up and, and, and how things worked on the record all the way through to the, to the mix and mastering of the record became, it became something that I really felt was, was what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted Mm -hmm. to be able to be involved in recording projects in that way, you know? Yeah. And you you had a big mark on, on Joni Mitchell's output between whatever it was, I guess like 82 is when that first one came out. And then there's like, uh, chalk mark you did late eighties, mm-hmm. um, turbulent indigo, which that was like my, in- weirdly, that was like my introduction to Joni Mitchell. I don't know how I missed her as like an early folk artist, but that was the one record where I, that was how I got to know her. was that record. And, um, right. and there's some amazing stuff on there. Do you have like a, a favorite record from that era where you worked with her that you think sort of like you you kind of nailed it as a producer and she was firing on all cylinders as a writer and performer well first of all i mean we we worked really together on on the production angle of mm-hmm. things you know i mean we we produced those records together and um and it was it was fantastic i mean we you know by that time we were we had uh gotten i mean we were a married couple yeah uh, at a certain point and we were working on these records of hers that, that, you know, you know, just, she was writing great songs always. And, 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 you know, it was, it was quite honestly, it was a huge learning experience for me working with her, you know, because she had been pretty much producing herself for all the years before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, she, you know, uh, as anyone would at a certain, at an early juncture in, in, um, switching modes, you know, like I, I, I think that I had a lot to learn when I started producing records and, and I was, you know, I made, I think, uh, mistakes in, in different ways, you know, of, 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 kind of being overly technical in the way that I approached uh, things, not thinking about the overview uh, of, of things, but, but sort of focusing on problem solving in making, yeah. uh, making records. I did, uh, you know, I made different mistakes that needed to, I needed, I really had a lot that I needed to learn. And she was, she, she really, uh, in a non-dogmatic way, but just in the way things worked, I functioned in a different way on the records that we worked together on. You know, she had mm-hmm. she had enough ideas, musical ideas for five people, so she didn't need me to yeah. be coming up with ideas per se, but but more to to help in the in the area of of figuring out how to get at the best way to get at accomplishing things that she thought of architecturally on records. And so, you know, there was a lot for me to learn there. And, and, um, 
Did she have uh, pretty solid ideas of how she wanted things to sound right from the get-go, or was she kind of like a blank slate to work with as far as like sonically what you guys did on those records? Um, both, you know, depends depends on the situation and the record, you know, mm-hmm. and and um, song-wise, everything was different on each record. I mean, if you talk about Turbulent Indigo, that record was an unusual record in that that we had split up actually. Mm-hmm. We, were, we had separated toward the beginning of the recording of that record. So we, it, you know, it was a period where we were, uh, it was kind of a uh, thematically uh, a record about our splitting up. And so that was an unusual thing to be doing to, you know, to be working on these songs that she was writing about that process and about, uh, you know, where we were in, in our lives. And, and um, I, I'd, I'd say, I mean, in some ways that was one of my favorite records and in, in, in that I, I think that we were doing some really good work together yeah. uh, on it. And, and that some of the things that we were getting at um, as far as the way that we were approaching each song and musical ideas and architecture and the way that we were designing things, we were getting at some very fresh ideas. I felt, you know, but 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 each each of the records that I did with her, uh, I love, you know, and and I I I think that you know, looking back, I I feel like I learned a, a lot on each of them, and 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 that. Um, there were import, important records in my musical development. Yeah, absolutely. Each, each one of them. And, 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 you know. Were they, were they very experimental or were they kind of quickly done? Like, was she writing tunes and then suddenly there was a project worth of songs? Or was it just sort of like, here's a song, you'd chip away at it over a while? Like, how, how much of a, of a period of time did a, a record like Turbulent Indigo take from always different you know i mean on on that record it was i don't know how many songs she had written when we started the record but uh, uh probably three or four and then and then you know while we were working on it she was writing like it would seem to me like at a for an artist like that at that point in her career nobody's gonna tell her like you gotta, you gotta make this. You gotta make a record now. Like she's probably gonna do it when she's damn well ready to do it, right? Well, that's right. And 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 uh, I think that by the same token, uh, I, you know, oftentimes people kind of say say, well, well, you know, how did you de- decide to take her in this musical direction? Well, well, the, the you know, the truth of of that is that I never decided to take her in in any musical direction that she, she had ideas, you know, that would trigger ideas on my part and we would kind of combine sort of our sensibilities and we try things and, and then some things worked and some things didn't work. And, and there was this back and forth and, you know, but, but it, it certainly wasn't any kind of situation where I, uh, overall, kind of thought, okay, here's, here's the direction for this record. 
Right. You weren't you weren't totally calling the shots in that way. You were sort of following her lead. No, not at all. Uh, And and, you know, she she's uh, always was a a hyper creative and and wonderful, wonderfully original kind of thinker when it came to musical design and architecture and how things fit together. And so so. you know, I was very fortunate to be part of that, and mm-hmm. and and we worked together during those years, you know, on on the records. But um, but I, it's certainly never was ne- never was any kind of uh, situation where I was dictating the way that we were going to come at different songs. Yeah. You know? um, so at at that point, she was sort of like getting into the Parker guitar, so it was sort of more of an electric thing for those records. Was it all over the place how you did them, or were were you setting up with with the band and like with Greg Lee's there? And I, I can't remember all the cast of who played on those records, like Manu Cachet, I think. And like, were those people all in the room together with her, or was she just recording stuff and then you were layering on top? Well, no, no I, th- I think the Parker guitar kind of came in a little later, maybe. She started using that after. I think you know that that was that came a little bit later. Okay. You know, um, so she was still playing acoustic guitar on all that stuff. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, um, they're they're really beautifully recorded records. So, like, was was it a situation where she would record and you would overdub percussion and and your bass and things like that, or or were you playing together? Uh, sometimes one or the other. All, uh-huh. Always, always different. Yeah. Yeah, always, always different. I uh, really appreciate the, the the time here. It's been great to talk to you. Oh, it's great to talk to you too. And and, and I, I wish I had more time. Thanks so much for uh, for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it, and I love what you do. And uh, it was great to hear some of your stories. All right. Yeah. Take care, man. All right. Bye bye. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Henhouse Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out.